We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. While Willerskin booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Lisa Pileski. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Wow. Speaking, did you look at the date? I know it's Black Friday. It's Black Friday. Run for your lives. We need some stampede there. Run for your lives. This is Evan Stam. Look out. Remember the day when people used to line up? Like outside of the Best Buys and whatever of the world, and and you, you know it was like a stampede through the doors, like people uh, jumping on top of each other for a Cabbage Patch Kid, or something. so you know. And, and on that note, um, our favorite Black Friday shopper, Liz Russell, and producer extraordinaire, uh, is she's she's gone across the border. We have made contact with her. Uh, the tether is still there. She is still hooked to the mothership. We understand, uh, but she's out in it. And uh, we'll talk to her later on um, this afternoon about um, about all the tremendous deals. And I have a feeling it'll just be go, Liz, and uh, because she, you know, she gets so excited about this. So, yeah, we've actually got a person on the scene when it comes to Black Friday uh, in the United States of America, I might add, in another country, another nationale. So uh, there you go. Uh, Liz taking time out of her. Or maybe we won't even get her. Like, maybe she won't pick up the phone. <laughs> we keep going to voicemail. What's going on? Yeah, well, you know. Uh, we've got, uh, uh, Yetis on sale. So I don't know. Uh, all right. Uh, it is Black Friday. It's also one month until Christmas Eve. Huh? November 24th. December 24th, uh, one month away. So, uh, think about that. Let that sink in. Have you got the leaves raked before you get the Christmas lights up? Okay, but I'm working on it, honestly. Uh, so some of the news of the day that, uh, we're following, uh, obviously the, the big news internationally, uh, we're seeing about 24 hostages released, uh, at latest, uh, account so far today from Hamas. Uh, the pause seems to be holding at this point. So good news there. Uh, 24 hostages have been released to, uh, this point. The Rainbow Bridge had reopened as we've talked about that as well. We're going to talk to, uh, the mayor of New York's, uh, the mayor of Niagara Falls, New York, and talk about his uh, uh, view of all of this. Uh, obviously, uh, the mayor of Niagara Falls, uh, Ontario, on uh, several times over the course of this, but we thought it'd be cool to get his view on all of this. Uh, oh, and the Prime Minister uh, changing the channel at the EU summit in Newfoundland. That's uh, still, I guess, winds up today uh, as uh, leaders from the EU have been meeting on various uh, world issues and such, and I'm sure uh, we'll have more on that throughout the course of the afternoon. All right. Right, coming up on the show today, and I hope you hang around for it. And this is cool because, you know, as we as we move to densify, what's really really important is that you do it right, and you just don't plot buildings uh, that necessarily don't fit into neighborhoods, or the infrastructure isn't there to to sustain the density or such. But but also, and I mean, I lived in cities across the country from. Um, Calgary to Ottawa. So, uh, and, and all, you know, points in between. And, and whenever I was in this when I was much younger, living in the downtown core, it, you know, the worst thing was to like look over at another apartment building and see, you know, somebody, um, 
doing whatever. And, you know, so as we do add density to the downtown core, which, you know, obviously we need to do, uh, how do we preserve certain parts of it and make sure that, you know, something doesn't get built on it? Um, you know, maybe somehow uh, wind all of this together. Uh, who knows? But how much of that goes into, uh, obviously, the expansion that we're now going to see? We're going to talk to the Director of Environmental Services uh, for the City of Hamilton on that and, and how you balance density and adding new parks or more parks to the downtown core. Uh, also, as I mentioned, going to talk to the mayor of Niagara Falls, New York, coming up this hour. Uh, and as well, uh, Elliot Tepper is going to weigh in on world issues of the day. And a fascinating poll we're going to touch on that's uh, just coming out in regard to the conflict that we're seeing, uh, obviously, with a Hamas-Israeli uh, war, whatever you want to call it, the pause that's on now and the release of hostages. Most Canadians believe that Canada should play a neutral role or completely stay out of the Israeli-Hamas conflict uh, now in its second month. Um, uh, I'm not sure how you can stay out of world events um, because sooner or later you get pulled into them. And, you know, I, I think some people think that, you know, if we just stay in our own piece of rock and don't bother with the rest of the world, that, um, that that's the solution. But I think, um, you know, World War II would be uh, a good example of, of what happens when you don't get involved fast enough. So uh, it's an interesting debate, and I'm sure it's one uh, Canadians are having from coast to coast to coast uh, in regard to what is going on. Again, for me, it's not about Israelis versus Palestinians. It's not versus uh, one religion versus another. It's not versus uh, left versus right. It's about democracy and freedom versus the alternative, which is the opposite of whether it's authoritarianism, dictatorship, terror, what have you. So, um, you know, I think we should take the personalities out of it. And, and really, what are, you, what are you looking for? Democracy, freedom, or the polar opposite? And I think these are questions we have to ask uh, everybody. And not only that, everybody has to pitch in and make sure we keep sound what we already have and, and what our ancestors fought for uh, over a couple of world wars. All right, some of the light discussions we're going to have over the course of a Friday. All right, obviously, uh, you know, the fact that we haven't built a lot in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years has caught up to us. We have a low building supply. Now the Mad Dash is on uh, to get a lot built in the shortest possible period of time. How do we do it without making mistakes? And, you know, go back 10 years from now and go, Shoosh, maybe we should have done this instead of done that. And I I've lived in many cities from uh, east to west. And uh, remember living in apartment buildings and then having all of a sudden apartment buildings being built right next to them. And then you lose a view or a park or or a piece of land. So how do you decide how to balance urban density and adding more to the inner city, but also providing the balance of green space and how those, because at the end of the day, if you're living on the 30th floor, you still got to have a place to go. Uh, let's bring in Cynthia Graham, Director of Environmental Services, City of Hamilton and here now. Cynthia, uh, Cynthia thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Happy to be here. Thanks. So, Cynthia, the obvious question, how do you balance all of this? Yeah, and that's a really important part of city building and something that my team is dedicated to doing. And I think the thing is that we just have to think ahead and try and plan and um, make sure that we're setting aside land for all of the different uses that we need, roads, walkways, trees, places to live and parkland. So it's really about forethought and planning and um, doing our best to implement. 
Uh, obviously, the mad dash is now to build and increase density and such. Um, is this perhaps speeding up the discussion, which is a good thing as long as the discussion is had, or are you are you feeling the pressure? Yeah, that's a good question, too. So one thing that our newly adopted parks master plan did was anticipate the density that we're thinking the the city will grow into and recognizing the importance of having parkland for those people that don't have access to their own private parkland like space, like um, backyards or um, neighborhood parks in areas um, that are built that way. So uh, we have planned for it. We um, know what the, the the housing targets are, and we know where density is likely to occur across, um, along the LRT corridor or in areas where there's already density. And what we're going to do is specifically look at those areas to see where can we be creative about where we can find places for parkland or open spaces, and how do we make sure that we're preserving access to those for these new residents that will be coming to our city. Obviously, you have different areas of the city with different personalities, different needs, uh, that sort of thing, uh, different resources as, as to how already it already, uh, how much it already is built up. Do you look the, do you look at this from a, you know, from a, a bird's eye view and thinking we have to have something that almost connects as, or as close as we can, I guess, or that makes sense even looking at the city from above. So it all kind of coordinates together as well as the individual neighborhood. How much thought put into that? Yeah, absolutely. And we do want to look at our parkland system as a system, as you say, and looking at active transportation connections and trails to get people from park to park or node to node um, across the city. But you're exactly right. There's different flavors and different um, personalities of the different neighborhoods across the city. And what's going to work in one area isn't going to work in another because of the way that the city was built or the infrastructure that's there or the opportunities that present themselves. So what we like to do is try to be flexible and take um, advantage of the opportunities that present themselves, whether it's a an opportunity to buy a parcel of land to um, convert to parkland, or like we did with the um, newly built John Rebecca Park, take a, a piece of parking lot and create parkland in an area that wasn't there before. So we really want to be nimble and be able to adapt and, and take advantage of those opportunities as they arise. You talked about uh, connectivity and such. Uh, what about a, a link of bike paths through all of this or paths uh, of any sort? You, you touched on that a little. Is it possible when even whether you're designing new or, or taking the old to create more of that walking space that joins them? Yeah, and paths through parks is a critical um, part of every parkland design. And you'll see that across the city where we're looking to make sure that people can get across the space in a way that is uh, contiguous and um, accessible. And we are uh, coordinating with our cycling master plan and our trails master plan to make sure that we're making those connections and identifying where there's gaps in the in the system. Obviously, it's not perfect yet, but we are working collaboratively to try and make sure that though that network is connected so that people can can get from one place to another as they like to so you've got this giant canvas in front of you and not all of it's blank but uh, what's your biggest challenge moving forward of the of the park system I think the biggest challenge for us is going to be um, 
looking at the areas where we have the parkland deficiencies, seeing what opportunities um, we can we can take advantage of and being able to move quickly to capture those um, opportunities. So work that our staff are going to be starting to do is looking into detail of the high priority neighborhoods, see what that fabric is like and where there's good ideas for creating new parkland or capitalizing on the existing parkland there. And then coming back to council with some of those plans and just trying to move forward with funding them and building them. What about as we're building new buildings and and creating density, having some sort of facility within that, whether it's rooftop patios, what have you? Yeah, so that's um, a good part of the planning process. And one of the things that our new park master plan did um, accommodate for was looking at opportunities for privately owned public spaces or what people call POPs. And typically, Hamilton hasn't taken advantage of that in the past, but we certainly need to be looking to all opportunities to provide. So that could be a ground level forecourt or a piece of grass um, on the side of of a building that, you know, is part of a setback. Um, Or as you say, rooftop gardens, um, possibly that have some sort of public access. All of those are really important parts of creating a city that is green and and healthy and create spaces for people. Uh, a very exciting time for the city as it grows. Absolutely. Uh, it's a great time to be in city building and park building. And uh, the team is um, really pumped to get get going on the plan and, and starting to create these spaces that we know people will love. Cynthia Graham with us, Director of Environmental Services, City of Hamilton, as we densify, keep uh, making sure a certain part of it stays green. Cynthia, thank, uh, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks for the interest. All the border crossings between Ontario and New York State have reopened, obviously, after the crash at the Rainbow Bridge checkpoint earlier on this week, leaving two people dead and a security uh, officer with minor injuries. Uh, Good news is not terror-related, but uh, obviously the investigation continues. Let's bring in the mayor of Niagara Falls, New York, Robert Restaino, and he's with us now. Robert, thanks for the time. hope you're doing well. Doing well. Thank you so much. So as a mayor, uh, are things back to normal for you or at least, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Uh, as a mayor, are things back to normal for you or is, uh, I imagine you're pretty busy with uh, obviously the Thanksgiving and the traffic that's going back and forth. Um, it's uh, getting back to normal. I mean, there are still, um, I mean, our departments are still working hard to solve um some questions with regard to the accident, but uh, by and large, traffic is moving again normally, so um, we are glad for that. Uh, obviously not a terrorist act. Uh, the governor said that earlier on, uh, later on that day, rather. How much do you know about the investigation? Who is investigating it now? Well, uh, the entire investigation has been turned over to uh, our local uh, police department. They're investigating, uh, they're trying to reconstruct um, the incident, investigating potential theories, or excuse me, potential causes, um, and they're developing a number of theories. It's going to take a while because the entire crash site being an explosion, um, <clears throat> there are there are limits to the physical evidence that, are, that is available. So, um, you know, they're working on it, and uh, I have every confidence that they will they'll work their way toward um, a better understanding of how this all unfolded. Uh, obviously, that's going to take some time to do, Mayor. Um, anything learned right away? Anything different today that wasn't there before this? 
No, I mean, I think that um, a lot of the facts that have been reported are, are relatively accurate. I mean, we know, um, I would say that you really narrow this down to the potential for um, one of two theories, either uh, a medical event or um, a mechanical event. And mm-hmm. again, uh, given the nature of the debris field and what's available because of the, of the fire and the explosion, some of that's going to take some time to sort out. Uh, are you concerned, uh, and we've all seen that video, of the high rate of speed that the car was able to obtain? Now, I understand, you know, this investigation is not complete, and, and I don't think they necessarily went down the normal routes that normal uh, that you would normally go through. But are you concerned about the, um, the, the rate of speed that the car was able to pick up in such a short period of time? Well, there's no question, given the, um, given the type of vehicle uh, that um, was involved, um, I've read and have um, seen some some information that indicates a vehicle of that type, it could get to 60 miles an hour in four seconds. So hmm. traveling that distance um, and picking up that kind of speed is certainly within the range of the of the of the vehicle itself. Uh, but it, yeah, obviously, when you look at the video and you see um, how the vehicle proceeded down Niagara Street. Um, I, at one point, I remember commenting, it looked just like a vapor going by. It was mm. so quick. Um, so, yeah, all of that is part of what they're going to be piecing together. And any more word on the uh, the border officer? Um, uh, how are they doing? The border officer, uh, thankfully, sustained no physical injuries uh, of, of um, uh, great, great consequence. Um, I think more than anything else, an explosion like that, um, coming so close to where he was at, uh, probably it's a lot more right now of having emotional uh, um, reaction to it. So uh, we're thankful that he was discharged um, that same afternoon, um, and hopefully he's getting whatever assistance he can um, after having had to be so close to dealing with that. Are you happy with the response and and how uh, law enforcement, uh, everybody worked together on this? Yeah, I think uh, that's one of the things. You know, when you when, when something tragic like this happens, you sort of go back and take a look at how did we respond, how did others respond. Now, I'm very very proud of our first responders, police and fire. You got to remember, they were first on the scene, and they were on the scene as the as the uh, pieces of information were starting to. Um, um, flicker out that this might be terrorism. In any event, they continued to move in and do what they had to do to try and um, um, get control of the situation. Obviously, then, once they were joined by um, federal officials, um, clearly there was a there was pretty massive individuals down there. When I, when I got down onto the scene, um, it was incredible the number of law enforcement as well as fire professionals that were down there. So it was um, a very great cooperative effort uh, in what was otherwise a real tragic situation. And I think once they all break it down, they'll also see, you know, what worked well, um, you know, what, what, what might have to get improved. But I think by and large, from the outside looking in, um, very, very proud of our people and proud of the cooperation among all the departments. And this happened late morning. Uh, how busy? It didn't appear the, the border was all that busy at that time. Or just it just no. happened to be where the accident happened. No, it wasn't. It wasn't all that busy. Um, certainly, um, what we were starting to get <laughs> were a number of calls uh, of Americans in Canada trying to get back, um, and mm. I think they were, you know, 
um, <clears throat> over there earlier. Um, but you know, clearly, um, it had this happened uh, a little bit later in the afternoon, I think it would have been a mu- it would have been a much more difficult situation. Um, so, to some extent, um, because of the roadway there in Niagara Street, fortunate uh, that there weren't other people on that. And what about other border officers that were involved when this went down? Because, of course, they're at ground zero. They don't know what's going on either. Yeah, I think um, obviously everybody um, reacted sort of as they've been trained. Um, And then clearly once the federal authorities were able to clear the scene, I think everybody was able to let out a sigh of relief. But I'm I'm. I'm, um, what I'm told is that at the moment it became uh, at least discussed that this might be terrorism. Everybody sort of reacted as they had been trained. So, again, um, a tribute to their, to their training and the fact that they did what they needed to do in what was an unknown situation. And how many, any rough idea how many people were stuck on either side of the border that were waiting to get back to their prospective countries? No, if I if I took the number of calls and sort of <laughs> worked my way from there, I could tell you it was an awful lot. <laughs> I can imagine. So uh, now, obviously, big holiday weekend with the Thanksgiving weekend for the U.S. Uh, how, is traffic being impeded in any way? Is it moving pretty uh, consistently as a result, as to be expected? Now that now that the uh, now that the bridge is fully opened, um, it's moving along at a normal pace. I mean, there are still going to be delays, but I think that's more a question of uh, volume uh, than of anything else. All right, Mayor Robert Bristano with us, Mayor of Niagara Falls, New York, giving us some perspective from their side of the border of what happened uh, earlier this week. And great news is all four border crossings are open between Ontario and New York and uh, get down and enjoy the U.S. Thanksgiving and vice versa. Uh, Mayor, thank you so much for the time. Good luck. Great to hear and uh, be well and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. Take care. There's so many things going on. Uh, one of them that we've forgotten about is uh, India and Canada's relationship uh, with India. And, of course, the Prime Minister is sort of alone on his island uh, w- with what he said a few months ago in regard to uh, a Sikh extremist that was uh, killed in Canada. And let's bring in Elliot Temper, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University, and here now. Elliot, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. So we remember, Elliot, that uh, Canada sort of spoke out and when others weren't or were, you know, using quiet diplomacy to try to figure this thing out and it kind of pushed Canada on and onto another island. And now uh, somehow the United States has become a part of this story with an allegation. What can you tell us about that? How has this story progressed? Well, a few things to start off with at the top. Canada also wanted to keep this whole thing quiet and tried to work with India off the record, out of the public's eye. And this all goes back to September at the G20 uh, meetings in New Delhi. And at that time, I was quite impressed by the fact that we raised uh, the whole question of the assassination on Canadian soil, allegedly, uh, by Indian intelligence agents of a Canadian. And then uh, at that time, we heard that Joe Biden had raised the same issue, uh, the killing of a Canadian on Canadian soil, But it turns out he was actually also, in addition, quietly, apparently, saying the same thing about an attempted assassination of an American on American soil, uh, also surrounding, of course, the whole issue of of Khalistan and the the Sikh movement in North America. So that's uh, 
now emerging apparently that there's a pattern. That's what the significance is of a second charge, and this time by uh, another country and another another uh, citizen of their own. A pattern of malign behavior, as it's being called by India. All of this, of course, only allegedly, but it's uh, there's actually a sealed indictment in the, in, in this case uh, in the UK coming out of all this. So uh, it is a major story, Scott. How did it? Uh, how did Biden handle it the way he did? Our prime minister handle it somewhat differently. Um, and where is this all now in the discussion? Are, are they united on this? Yes, I, I think uh, too much is being made about how it's been handled differently. Canada, along with the U.S., tried to handle this off the record, quietly and behind the scenes. Uh, we were forced into. A, we, meaning Canada, was forced into a public statement because our highly effective journalists were about to break the story publicly. So one day ahead of that, uh, Mr. Trudeau then for the first time went public. And at that point, we should. I was impressed by the fact that Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor in the U.S., said India gets no exemption. Uh, the Secretary of State Blinken came out with a parallel kind of statement back then. And I thought, that's really interesting that uh, they could have just let <laughs> let all this, uh, you know, hang Canada out to dry. But in fact, uh, are standing with Canada, and it's, as it turns out, they had a parallel case involved. So I'm not sure that the we should dwell on the fact that it's being handled differently. It's now public in both cases. Uh, Canada and the U.S. are now saying to India, uh, "Is this a pattern? Is this something you're going to?" Uh, uh, deal with the difference in response, I think, will be on the other side. Scott, it will be how does India handle these? Keeping in mind, India is an emerging big power. Uh, the U.S. and everyone else is really counting on India to be some kind of a counterweight. So to China, to the emergence of China, here's a democratic alternative, uh, a country that can do manufacturing and can play a geopolitical role and is doing so in a way that coincides with Western interests at times. So the whole effort has been kind of two-track. Uh, publicly, let's let's say we, we all really want to work with India and count on their cooperation. But on second track, it's now becoming apparent there's increasing concerns about the nature of India's democracy and how they operate abroad. Uh, the allies at the beginning didn't seem to necessarily speak up, but they are now in this case obviously reinforces that. U.S. case. Yes. Yeah, actually, I, I was uh, suggesting that the, the Allies actually did speak up in a way that has not been, yeah. I think, appreciated until now, because among other things, right. sent, if you think back to September, the American ambassador was sent out on the talk shows in Canada uh, to reinforce Canada's position as well. So it was, I think, quite clearly a two-track effort going on publicly, uh, U.S. and Canada as well, and Everyone wants uh, everybody in the West and in democracies counts on India to be a counterweight and a constructive security partner as well as an economic partner going forward, uh, wishing India well in that regard. But uh, off the record and privately and quietly pressing India on issues that are raising grave concerns. And once again, in this case, uh, the U.S. has said this is being raised at the highest level. And the, the key difference now is how the uh, Indians are going to react because how I framed it at the time last September when all this was breaking was this. 
if you want to see what kind of power India is going to be, let's see how they handle the situation with Canada. And we see what they've mm-hmm. done with Canada has basically slapped us around quite a bit, cutting our yeah. diplomats down to a mere 41 in that country of over a billion two people, uh, severely harming relations. In fact, I counted at that time, and I think with you I commented on it, that I was watching for domestic opinion within India and in, in Canada to put pressure right. on the government of India to back off the very disruptive behavior toward uh, visa applications in particular. Can- India is by far Canada's number one source of immigrants, and what I care about a lot, a major source of international students coming to Canada. Some of that's now being ironed out, I think, due to the internal pressure on on the Indian government to say, hey, you're messing with our lives, <laughs> and this is very serious. But they're not Elliot, I got to cut you off there. I got to yep. cut you off there, Elliot, because we're plum out of time. We will continue this okay. uh, this discussion. Elliot Tepper with us, Very emeritus good. professor of political science, Carleton University. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we certainly know of uh, the conflict of the Hamas in Israeli war that is going on. There is a pause right now, a a humanitarian pause it seems to be holding, which is good news. But uh, interesting information coming out of Ipsos. Most Canadians believe that Canada should play a neutral role or completely stay out of the Israel-Hamas conflict, uh, but is that an option? Uh, let's, Especially when, uh, well, I'll leave it at that. Daryl Brooker with the CEO of Ipsos Polling. Daryl, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me on. How do you weigh through this very polarizing and difficult issue, Daryl? Uh, it must be incredibly hard to do. Well, it tends to be polarizing at the extremes, but not for the general population overall. I mean, when you add up the number of people who think Canada should be a neutral mediator, not be involved at all, and uh, you're, you're talking about 64% of the overall population, and then added another 10%, it's uh, do none of the above, anything uh, at all, just stay out of it, and you're you're in almost a three-quarters of the Canadian population. So um, most of us really don't want to be involved in this, uh, don't think Canada really has a big role maybe than other than just a maybe a positive humanitarian role but it's pretty much away from the extremes even though that's not what you see on the street uh and there's the next question there Daryl uh how do you stay neutral when the extremes are are protesting are polarizing well, I think the first thing for anybody who's looking at uh, at the protests is it doesn't take a lot of a lot of people in terms of the overall population to be pretty disruptive. I mean, uh, the other day we saw I don't know was it mm. twenty people out on the Gardner Expressway shutting down the city of Toronto. It's just twenty people, but you know among the you know. 18% of the population that strongly supports Israel to the 9% that strongly supports the Palestinians, you can find 20 people on each side to go out and, and cause some difficulty. So uh, don't, uh, I would say to anybody uh, looking at this issue, don't think it's the people who are on, have the more extreme emphatic opinions on this that are, are really representative of Canadian public opinion. Uh, that being said, we still do have to deal with the extremes. And as a result, I mean, many people say stay neutral or completely stay out of it, but we're drawn in with these various factions. Um, are they, uh, are they looking at that? Are they realizing that? 
you know, I, at, at this stage of the game, Canadians are rather feel rather distant about this. I mean, the mm-hmm. uh, you know we've do, been doing polling on the Middle East for a long time, and Canadians' uh, views of uh, the, the the Palestinian issue relative to the Israelis, and Canadians have been pretty neutral for quite a while. Um, elite opinion, though, on this on this issue tends not to be neutral. It tends to be more emphatic, uh, but the the general population opinion in Canada tends to be pretty subdued. Uh, from the information, the research you've uncovered here, how do you see this progressing then? Well, I think Canadians will probably be supportive of the idea that there is a, a ceasefire. And in fact, what, you know, over 80% of us say that there should be one, especially if the, uh, if the uh, hostages are being released. So they like that idea. 87% of us think that the civilians fleeing the fighting in Gaza should be able to go to a safe country. So if things calm down and people are allowed to leave and hostages are released, Canadians will consider that to be progress. I, you know, uh, and again, Daryl, not to be pessimistic here, but, you know, I, I don't know anybody that doesn't want peace. I don't know anybody that mm. doesn't want to stay neutral and stay out of other people's business and such. But, you know, as we've seen through world wars, sometimes it ends up on our lap and we have to do something. Our, again, going back to that question, do you think, you know, uh, Canadians, uh, um, do you think Canadians understand they may not have a choice in this? No, I don't think that they do at this stage of the game. It's something that seems to be over there. And, and, you know, you could also roll in the other big conflict that's happening in the world today, which is Ukraine. And Canadians were a little more emphatic about how they felt about it last year. But again, when you compare it to what other people in other parts of the world are thinking, we tend to see it as a fairly distant kind of thing. Yeah, we support the Ukrainians. But uh, do we want Canadian soldiers on the ground in uh, in Ukraine fighting on, on their behalf? The answer is no. So uh, Canadians do tend to use that distance across oceans and across continents as uh, a reason not to go deeper than just, uh, I would say, maybe emotional support for things. Uh, Do you think this will continue to be a flashpoint for those on the extremes or do you think this will simmer down? Or does that depend no, on the outcome? Uh, I think it, it could uh, be a flashpoint on the extremes, depending on what happens on the ground uh, in the uh, in, in in Palestine and and uh, uh, and uh, and in Israel. Uh, if if um, if there are more events like that we saw on October the seventh, or uh, you know, we continue to see that the the, the war uh, is is producing a lot of civilian uh, casualties. Yeah, I expect that you'll see that diasporas in 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 Canada on both sides of this have their uh, point of view expressed on the streets. Do you think the Canadians realize this is less about uh, Palestinians versus Israelis and more about freedom and democracy versus the opposite or authoritarianism, dictatorship, terror? No, I, to to the for to the largest extent I would say uh people just see this as a story about innocent victims. Yeah. And they don't like innocent people being hurt and, and uh, affected by uh, by uh, you know battles between groups and states or however you want to uh, you want to characterize this so what they really want to do is they want to see stability uh, um, uh, come back and they want to see people stop dying so that's how they look at this. The, the history of what went on, you know, who's right, who's wrong, all of that uh, pales very much in comparison to tragic pictures that you see on television, whether it was on October 7th or even seen more recently uh, in, in Gaza specifically. So that, that's what Canadians are really affected by. It's the suffering. Daryl Bricker with us, CEO of Ipsos Polling, and how most Canadians are feeling about the Israeli-Hamas conflict. Daryl, as always, thanks for the time. Fascinating. Be well.
You too. Thanks, Scott. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. At a time when the governing liberals are trailing the conservatives with double-digit margins in national public opinion polls, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has hired a marketing and branding specialist to lead his communications team, uh, so says the Hill Times. Max Valakit, who has more than 25 years' experience in communications, marketing, and branding, will start his new job as Executive Director of Communications for the Prime Minister's office in early December, according to a government source who will oversee communications, digital research, research and advertising teams of the prime minister's office to talk more about all of this. Alyssa Freeman is with us. Alyssa PR pop culture expert and is here now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes. Thanks, Scott. So uh, we could ask the question, what took the liberals so long to, to do this? But then again, it took the conservatives a couple of decades to figure it out. What are your thoughts <laughs> of this latest move? Listen, I think it's a smart move. I mean, how far do the polls have to go to in a downward hmm. trajectory before you start to do something? So you think you've got about two years until an election? Well, use those two years wisely. You've got to do your research. You've got to do your polling. You've got to understand what demographic you're going after and what they want to hear and how they think. So two years is a long time. Listen, sometimes... 48 hours can be a long time uh, in, in politics, Scott. So two years should be plenty of time if they want to try and turn around and right this ship, or the, as the liberals are trying to do, despite economic conditions, despite a lot of things that are going on in this country. Now's the time to try and do it. Uh, many, uh, is is that what it is, or is it a Hail Mary pass? Because many have said for the, for a long time uh, from the liberal camps that, you know, the, the problem is communication. Our message just isn't being heard. And I think we know loud and clear. We've talked about this before. We know what the prime minister's message is. So is it the message isn't being clear, or they just don't like what he's saying? I think it's the messenger. And I think that when you start to hire a communication... So, so it's neither. <laughs> well... <laughs> no, uh, when, when you hire a communications and marketing expert, it means that, number one, that it could be a number of things, Scott, but really what it boils down to is the message not getting through because, you know, economic conditions are so bad and everybody's just feeling generally crappy about the way life is going in Canada these days, or they just don't want to hear it from, you know, uh, Trudeau. So when you start to do all of this research, there's a lot of things that come out. What comes out is, you know, on the pulse of what how country is feeling they what comes out is you know what they're feeling about you know a number of different issues so that they will silo all those issues and they'll test that and they'll test those narratives but they're also going to test on how those messages are being delivered and who is delivering those messages so you know two years is a long time to reframe messages to send out trial balloons of what narratives are um you know hitting with the canadian public and what are falling flat but it can also and this is sort of like very extreme because you know we can't see trudeau stepping down anytime soon but if the polls show that the liberals are not going to win because of who is in power right now that will also bear out and that is a much tougher conversation
Uh, that's interesting. Also, uh, again, going back to, I don't think it's a case of the message not getting out. I think what it is, is they have drastically changed their messaging, uh, a complete 180 from what it was even just a few months ago, especially on housing, affordability issues, uh, you know, anything of of that nature. Uh, You know, I I don't think that their message was not being heard. I think it's a case that they've completely changed direction. And now they need somebody to sell that idea and inform everybody that, no, we're not over here. We're over here. Well, that is true, too. But there's also how people feel where the rubber hits the road. So, you know, Mm. if you talk about housing and you talk about making life better, um, you know, you're going to have to come up with messages that convince the Canadian public that, you know, you're not feeling crappy at all that you can't afford a house. It's about something else, Uh, you know. So that is a very, very tough uphill climb. And when you go outside to hire a consultant who is essentially going to come in to an existing team that has been dealing with sort of the day-to-day and the minutiae, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees anymore. So what they feel by hiring an outside consultant is somebody with fresh eyes that can look and say, you know what, guys? This is what we need to do. And this is the demographic we're going to go after. And we're going to reframe our messaging to see if it lands. And that's essentially a really tall order. Like, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, Scott, you and I said to you, you know, you got two years to do it. Listen, two years can go by in the blink of an eye. So, you know, these people, you know, this Max Bellicat, who they have hired, has a very long pedigree and worked for some big brands in this country and helped steering them in the right direction, uh, is obviously probably well known to liberal insiders. And that's why they brought him on. And believe me, they're not paying him peanuts to do this. So you've got to go into an existing team. You've got to get them to support you and and gather around the, this new cause and this new direction. And hopefully everybody internally coalesces so that they can create this new engine uh, to turn this ship around. And that is a really, really tall order. Will the subject take the advice? Well, there you go. Because sometimes, you know, I think that a lot of things that I have heard is that, you know, they might level things up to the PM and then Trudeau will go, no, I want to do it this way. And not every head of state listens mm. to, you know, no, best true. plans or best advice. I mean, that mm-hmm. that we have seen throughout history. So will the subject take the advice? Sometimes the numbers are enough to, pri- to provide proof in the pudding, Scott. So if your poll number is going down, 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 and you keep negating best advice, well, you know, that's a really... Um, that's a, a big bucket of cold water that's got to come over you. And then you really have to internally uh, come around to the fact that we're not going to, you can't do things the way you've been doing them for the past couple of years. It, 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 it'll be interesting to see if they're actually moving from a message of deny and always distract, deny, distract, look something shiny over here to actually identifying the problem admitting it, and then providing a solution. Because it seems in the past, it's just all about distraction, distraction, denial. Okay, well, every political party does distraction, distraction, denial as part of your, it's part of the MO. But I also will say that, yes, it might be distract, distract, or it might be look over here and here's what you're going to get if you don't like me. So there's that avenue that they can go to, Scott. So you think they might focus on uh, Polyev then? Well, they might. I mean, listen, I was yeah. on um, X, formerly known as Twitter, last night, and there was a CP reporter who's been around for CP's Canadian Press, um, 
long, uh, a long-standing reporter uh, with that uh, entity, and he wrote a tweet that said, um, "I have never ever been schooled." by uh, a head of state uh, before in a press conference. <laughs> and you see Polly Ever going, okay, well, you didn't ask that question right. And then may I say so-and-so from CP, and by the way, this is who this is, this is who this organization is. And then Polly Ever, like, standing up there, and I hate to say this, Scott, you know, by like a little school teacher, yeah. sitting there, you've done this wrong, that wrong, I and know. this wrong. I'm yeah. sorry. There's a time and a place where you got to stop believing your own PR. And that yeah, would be he- a good time. Yeah, he's still coming across his way too prickly. He's going to shoot himself in the foot if he keeps it up. And that, sure. and prickly, could be the liberal narrative for the next 18 months. There you go. I've just given it away. Alyssa Freeman, we want a piece of this. Alyssa Freeman, PR, uh, PR and pop culture expert, as always. Thanks for the time. Be well. Really, they should be hiring us, Scott. Anyways, I think so. Week. I think so. We can get them through it all. We can wade through. All right. Have a great weekend. We know it's Black Friday. Run for your lives. And also, uh, November 24th, so it's one month till Christmas Eve. How apropos is all of that? Uh, and she does it every year. She dons her roller derby gear, her her helmet, her her knee and elbow pads, and she ventures across the border. And it's uh, it's a ritual. It's it's like the it's like the birds migrating back and forth. Liz Russell, content producer for Good Morning Hamilton, is with us now. Liz, I'm glad to see or uh, see and hear that you've made it back. No scars, no bruises. All is good. I don't think there was big enough crowds for me to don the der- the derby gear. <laughs> That's interesting because that was uh, we'll get to. Well, let's start with that. How wh- you you do this? You love doing this. It's a ritual for you. How did the crowds compare to others? I mean, let's just compare from last year the, to this year, and even with like the whole border thing. Last year, crossing the border, I flew through. There was like twenty people in line at the law lo- the Walmart on military. This year, I waited thirty minutes at. The- border and i was the first person in line at walmart uh the line did not go around the building like it normally does it was maybe i want to say 30 people deep and yeah i I don't think there was the rush the same as in previous years now do you think this had to do with the incidents at the border border because it seemed to be moving okay or just people have a different attitude this year I don't think it was the situation at the border. I think yeah. when it came to the wait at the border, absolutely. Like there was probably people that said, hey, like I know rainbows down, but the other ones are going to be busy during the yeah. day on Thanksgiving Day for the States. So why don't we go Friday morning? So, I mean, I understood the little bit of the wait. That's why I left as early as I did. Um, but I think there's several things at play here. One being that the deals are not very, they're not the same, especially mm. with the uh rate of exchange i mean walmart was doing uh, a deal of 4.99 for a ps5 but when you add it in the conversion that's like 500 550 bucks and that's roughly off the top of my head uh that's roughly the price that you could get for one here you might get a little bit of a savings but is it enough to warrant driving across a border you know wait like gas money like is it worth it I don't really think so. Whenever I go over, I try and find something that has like that is unique. It's a bit of a a deal, something that I haven't seen back home. Right. Um, So I feel like that came into play, like the currency exchange and obviously the border probably played a factor into it, too. But I think the the other thing, too, is cost of living. Everything's costing so much money. Now, I did chat with a lady who said money's money. I don't care. I'm here to spend. And I'm like, okay, Mm. (laughs) you go, girl. (laughs) But. 
for the most part, a lot of people were like, hey, let's there's a lot of things that are costing money. There's specific things that I've looked up online and that I've decided that I'm going to come here and get. Uh, and you bring up a valid point too. Like, and I remember the day, man, people would be lined up and, you know, they, they need security and police just because the, you know, the people on the doors and such. Uh, and now it's just so much easier to do it online and, 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 and I guess cover more ground in a shorter period of time, which has to play a big part in this. Oh, absolutely. Myself, Personally, like I will order things online once in a while. My most recent purchase was a bit too expensive for my liking, but I did order something online and, you know, that's fine. But I feel like I, I like, I'm one of those people who are like, I need to see it yeah, yeah, for me to justify the purchase. Like half the time, if I'm shopping on, say, Amazon, I'm filling my cart and then I wait a week. And after a week, I look at it and go, do I even like this still? And if I do, then OK, maybe I'll buy it. But if not, then it's out of the cart, you know. So what um, was your time? What was your time? Line. You go down relatively early. You spend so much time and get back. Uh, what was what was your timeline like? So I left at three thirty this morning. I got to oh, Lewiston Bridge at four twenty, and I ca- uh, crossed over at four fifty. Went to Walmart first, then I hit Target. Then after, like. You know, so last said, year, I was at Walmart. Walmart you're Target a, you're oh, a, way longer than what I was expecting. But you're at Walmart. This year, at I five hit up in there. The- I so you're cold. at I hit Maurice's. I went everywhere. <laughs> so you were at Walmart at five in the morning? Yes. But the doors weren't <laughs> open, so you had to actually wait to get in. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. All right. So what about the shop? You said there was less people, less shoppers, less of everything in that respect. Uh what about the shoppers? Happy, cranky, uh, you know, they must have been in a good mood because there wasn't many of them. Honestly, every person that I spoke with was very happy to be there. If even if they were worried about their wallets, like they they were happy to be there. There was a group that came over and they were saying like, "Oh, we're doing like a girls trip." And then another couple was saying like, "Oh, we do this every single year." Um, they and they yeah. were they were reminiscing with me, saying we used to come at like midnight and camp in the car, mm-hmm. and then get out at two in the morning to line up. And I, I sat there and I'm like, "That's a bit too much for me." <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, really, <laughs> but. Take the yeah, motor like home down and just. Everybody was happy, you know. Like <laughs> take, there was no take the motor. miserable. Pardon. T- take the motor home down and just camp out for the week. Why not? Um, oh, exactly. did you have any? Did you have any issues getting back across the border? I was worried. I was really worried. I was going to get <laughs> in the span of like from the store opening to when I came back over, which is about ten thirty. I dropped like two hundred and fifty bucks. So. I, I was thinking I might have got dinged at the border, especially since like whenever I go over and other people find out, they tend to say, hey, can you pick this up for me? And one yeah, of those exactly. things is dairy. You're not supposed to bring dairy over the border. And my mom was like, hey, can you get me some yogurt? So I had like 10 things of yogurt in the back and I'm sitting there going, oh, man, I'm going to get dinged. I'm going to get dinged so bad. Would you do it again next year? Is it worth doing again or just an annual thing for you? You'll do it every year. Um, I might. If I have a bigger group, maybe, uh, maybe load up all, the whole CHML team broadcast where live <laughs> military boulevard. I don't know. Take the van uh, down. Sure. Exactly. Uh, I, I liked that it was a less busy last year. It was a tad busier and a little bit more hectic, but this year I, I felt it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad at all. All right, Liz Rosa with us, content producer for Good Morning Hamilton, and uh, truly uh, embraces the Black Friday experience doing her annual trip to Buffalo across the border and made it back unscathed. Good for you, Liz. I hope you got some bargoons, and thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. 
When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, when I worked with Todd Lewis uh, many moons ago, uh, ago at Y95, we used to always talk about racing and such. Now he's the host of Rec Culture TV, NASCAR Pinty Series announcer, and featured in Scouting the Refs and Racing It Out podcast. And he is with us now. Todd, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, and I hope you are too, Scott. It's been a while, a couple months. It has, and we always love talking racing. And, you know, uh, it used to be in the day it was one series against the other. Now anything that races is good enough for me, and I found my love for F1. And I remember talking to you way back when, and we've talked about this before, and you always said it was the technology that attracted you to the sport. And we saw that uh, certainly uh, last weekend in uh, Las Vegas. And I'm hearing about how, you know, the track was coming apart and, and such, and I'm thinking, well, you know, that doesn't look good on Las Vegas and whatever. And then as you do further research, you find out it was actually repaved. But the ground effects on the car are so intense. The pressure is so intense, severe, that it actually sucks the pavement right up or suck these drains right out of the ground. Uh, this is incredible to, to know that <laughs> a vehicle going over top of something can provide such a force. I don't know if it's easier to think about it this way, but if you could get a, a Formula One car, an Indy car is the same. If you could get it actually upside down and going at 100 miles per hour, I guess that's 160 kilometers per hour, it would adhere to the ceiling. The ground effects are that <laughs> significant. So that's just to give you a little a little more perspective on that. But you're right. It's it's it, it's incredible. You can do everything right. You can repave the entire circuit as they did prior to the Grand Prix last week, but they do have st city street drains around and they thought they had a accommodated for that. Turns out they didn't. Caused a couple of million dollars damage to a couple of race cars. Really screwed up the schedule in that they had to practice at three o'clock in the morning or four o'clock mm -hmm. in the morning and all the spectators had to disperse. It's not unusual for weird things to happen at a first time event. I worked at a, a champ car race in San Jose in 2005, and they had to delay the start of on track action because of trolley tracks that ran through the circuit. And it took longer uh -huh. than expected to get the course in shape for cars to go out. It, it still didn't take away from the culmination of the event of the F1 Grand Prix that Max Verstappen won, that we had an incredible last lap pass by a Ferrari to get up onto the podium. And let me tell you, watching that sphere looks pretty incredible in the middle of the track, too, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And, and again, you know, kudos for for a great show. And, and this has happened before. It's just one of those unforeseen circumstances and such. But it also draws attention to the technology of the car, because I understand it 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 it, uh, it damaged the battery portion of the car. And a lot of people may not realize these are hybrid vehicles. And that's the the evolution of Formula One and other series are moving into that as well, is to have hybrid and battery power as part of it. The electrification of automobiles is becoming more widespread throughout society. They're selling at a pretty significant rate. And that's what the, the car manufacturers who supply the engines to these cars want, is they want more electrification and hybrid technology. So if, if the battery is damaged and and again, the rules uh, did not accommodate for uh, track coming up yeah. and damaging battery to allow for repair to take place without a 10 place grid penalty. So so this is the, the, the sidestep that you have to do. But but yes, the the sophistication and technology is is incredible when you see them on television. They're amazing. When you see them in person, they are even more captivating to see mm -hmm. the aerodynamics on 
the on the surface of the cars that each piece is there for a specific reason to provide downforce at a specific location or to reduce drag at a different part of the car and the uh, the hybrid technology and everything else that goes into it is is incredibly sophisticated and you know there was a time todd when manufacturers were running away from motorsports now they're getting back in i understand gm's thinking about it with the andretti's GM has said under their Cadillac brand is they will be a supplier in Formula One for Andretti Autosport. They want to supply Andretti Autosport when they get into Formula One. Getting in has been the hard part. The teams have been resistant. The the Formula One sanctioning body is kind of keeping them at arm's length and not wanting to declare, yes, we're going to let you in for a few hundred million dollars to become the 11th team with two cars on the Formula One grid. It, it looks like it might happen. It looks like it's getting closer to happen, but there's been they've been met with a lot of resistance and it, it's over money because it's 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 hundreds of millions of dollars and billions of dollars in the industry of Formula One that uh, has, has been the resistance for for allowing and welcoming Andretti with open arms. The other teams don't want to share it. And the the Formula One sanctioning body is trying to make everyone happy while still collecting a, a big fee to get let Michael Andretti and his team in. It's a little bit like the Las Vegas race. Everybody wants the show and go, but man, they're not sure they like the circus of it all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, but that is the, uh, the other part of it. It's, uh, mm. it's, it's intense sporting competition in terms of racing, but Formula One has realized other series are sometimes realizing some not realizing near as much. You are in the entertainment business. And if you yeah. are not entertaining your customers, both those that pay at the track and those that either watch on television or on streaming services, you're you're going to lose them because there are so many other entertainment choices. So it has to be a captivating show. It has to be an exciting show. You have to allow people into the sport, Drive to Survive, that grabbed you was yeah. the, the best example yeah. of that with Formula One. All the other series have been scrambling now to try to recreate their own magic bullet of a series. It, you can't recreate something like that. It was the right thing at the right time. But you are in the entertainment business as well as uh, elite level worldwide sporting. And we've only got a, a few seconds left, but it's amazing how it's all changed in just a few years with America going from no races to three races. And now it seems like it's an entirely different game. And there may be a fourth one because there's been discussion of that. And the Formula One sanctioning body would like to be in the New York City area market. So who knows? Maybe there will be a fourth one. But Austin's fantastic. Miami's had two good years. And Vegas, they have a 10-year deal. So they'll be around for a while. And I don't think the European fans are necessarily all that happy about it or tracks. But that's another discussion. Todd, always fun. Todd Lewis with us, host of Rec Culture TV, NASCAR Pity Series announcer, and is with us now. Todd, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, pal. Talk to you soon. All right. A four-day pause or ceasefire, whatever you want to call it, it seems to be holding uh, between Israeli and Hamas uh, forces, uh, allowing aid to flow into Gaza. Um, what happens moving forward? Let's bring in Dr. Arne Kislenko, Mar uh, Margaret McMillan, Trinity One International Relations Program at Trinity College, a Department of History, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University and University of Toronto. I did those backwards. Sorry about that. Uh, Arne, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Um, well, thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. So your thoughts on where we are, the fact that this has started, it seems to be holding, and President Biden uh, seems hopeful, saying uh, that he, he is hopeful that perhaps it might last even longer. Any chance of that in your, in your eyes? 
Yeah, there is. There, there's a very real chance that it continues. Uh, I think we need to be realistic about the fact that it's nowhere near a settlement of any sort. This is, a, you know, sometimes I think people get confused. This is a pause. Um, there's bound to be more military uh, activity, especially on the on the part of Israel. So what I think the best hopeful outcome is that this four days extends into a longer period. But um, there's a lot, a lot behind the scenes. I mean, there's a lot of intelligence uh, opportunities here. There's, of course, the exchange of prisoners. That's first and foremost. There's humanitarian aid. And there's a lot of pressure in the background on, on both participants to engage in the process. But none of that guarantees it's going to last forever. Um, many were wondering whether it would even get started or when it, when it did, how long it would last. Now we're talking about possibly it being extended. And, and I, obviously, we don't have a crystal ball here. But what has to happen in order for it to extend? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, first and foremost, both sides have to not break it. I know that sounds funny. Yeah. There, there is a very real chance that, you know, there is a regional escalation. So not necessarily uh, in Gaza, but that uh, particularly vis-a-vis Hezbollah, it, it explodes. Uh, and then you're back into a, a different kind of war. Um, Israel, of course, is still hunting the perpetrators. And we shouldn't forget that. So while getting prisoners, they're still actively engaged in intelligence opportunities. They're discovering new tunnels. That might mean an exchange of fire it could easily go bad. Or if Hamas, which I, you know, I always sort of say to people, it's not a singular organization the way we imagine. There's bound to be factions, and some of them may just sort of, you know, decide to take it into their own hands and, and undermine the peace process by firing more missiles. So if all of that holds true, then you have more aid going in. You have the exchange of, uh, you know, it's a three for one deal basically, right? Three Palestinians for every Israeli in this case. Um, Israel is is likely to want to extend it, uh, not just for the release of its own people, but because it does give it an opportunity to gain intel on the ground um, and to increase some of its army operations elsewhere. Um, but again, it's precarious, right? For every moment that there's a, a ceasefire, Israel is bound to think that it's losing opportunities to go get the leaders of Hamas. Uh, we see from images this area has pretty much been leveled. Any more thought from either side as to what happens once the dust settles? How does it end? You know what? I don't think anybody actually knows. I, that is a really fantastic question. It's the kind of question everybody fears to answer because um, I don't know You know how you build something out of absolute desolation and rubble, to be totally honest with you. And I don't just mean in the physical sense, the, the Palestinian yeah. People are, are likely to be quite sympathetic to, if not Hamas and some incarnation of it. It's going to be hard to build bridges with the people that you just launched a war on, uh, and vice versa. Anything coming out of Hamas or PL, you know, Palestinian uh, political groups is bound to mean nothing after the the you know horrendous attack on Israel. Um, so now it's a bit of a waiting game, and it really is a question of you know devil in the details. What uh, is Israel getting? How much can they gather? For their stated objective of eliminating Hamas, if that's even possible. Um, and I think the only thing we can all focus on is the good news, right? It's a, a small piece of good news, but the release of people uh, on both sides and the fact that at least temporarily there's there's a, a momentary cessation of dying. Um, and it, it is really that dramatic. I don't know that anybody knows, including the leaders of both sides, how this is going to play out. Uh, obviously, this pause to for humanitarian reason and reasons and to help the people of this area. Um, what is Hamas doing to help Palestinians during this time, during this well, pause? That, that is another wonderful question. And it's one that a lot of people are afraid to ask, to be honest with you. I don't think anything. Why are people afraid to ask it, Arn? 
You know what? It's because it plays right into a narrative, a simple narrative that people like. Who's bad? Who's good? In this right. scenario, and the answer is there isn't such an answer. Um, but the reality is, is people, and I totally understand why people are so outraged by Israel and the death and destruction that it's caused, the innocence of Palestinians and needless slaughter of them. And uh, none of that changes with what I'm about to say. But we shouldn't forget that Hamas knowingly put the Palestinian people in this situation. They live amongst them. They have for a long time. They may operate, uh, as the Israelis are trying to prove, um, right in places like hospitals. And whether or not that's true, they, they carried out a mission that they knew would invoke this kind of, of action. It's not like that was a surprise to them. So in that light, you know, Hamas uh, and its state of objectives are, are really important here. It wants um, a war. It's got a war. Um, but it's not really fighting it, is it? It's the Palestinian people who are paying for it. And I think people are afraid to say that because they're worried about, you know, the, the uh, sort of insinuating that all Palestinians are Hamas or terrorists or anything, which is not the case. But, you know, this is really important to mention. Hamas um, went on this mission knowing full well the response uh, from Israel. Uh, and everything that Israel has done is subject to debates and, and discussion, absolutely. But we can't just simply say, well, you know, it's a one-way aggression. Uh, Hamas knew this would happen. So I don't think it's doing anything for the Palestinian people. I, I think the only thing it's doing is, is agreeing to negotiations via Qatar and, and, uh, and the U.S. To, to try to get some aid in there. But it still is committed to the destruction of Israel as a state. It still has hostages. It hasn't released them all. Um, so I think we need to be careful about presuming that Hamas is really interested in the Palestinian people. Uh, you talked about who's bad, who's good, and I've had this discussion with many uh, such as you s since this all began. Uh, for me, and, and, and people are trying to personalize it, Israelis versus uh, Palestinians, Palestinians versus Israelis. For me, it's none of that. It, it's not religion versus another religion. It's not left versus right. It's freedom and democracy versus the opposite or authoritarianism and terror. Uh, why are we not having that discussion as opposed to trying to personalize it? Yeah, I think a lot of people would argue with you and say, well, you know, Palestinians uh, in the Israeli state don't have a democracy, so Israel, therefore, is not a democracy. You've no doubt heard many people argue it's an apartheid state. So they would, of course, use that as the premise to, to argue Israel is not a democratic player and is not really, therefore, interested in, in democratic freedoms. Um, I, I would, hmm. would agree in the fact that Hamas, to, to some people has become really romanticized, or at least they're total overlooking its very long and established history as a, a fundamentalist ideological terrorist organization. Um, let's call it what it is. It may you know, function under the guise of being a social agency. It may not be recognized by many Palestinians as a harbor of terror for whatever reason. But objectively, experts around the world and media people and everybody else this is an organization that's been with us for 40 plus years. It's carried out a huge amount of terror. Um, and regardless of whether, you know, Israel, quote, some, quote unquote, deserves that or is guilty of other things, you know, I, I like those arguments. I teach about those arguments. Right. So for me, this is very much part of the narrative. Um, but I, I think in the last few weeks, we've seen a lot of people for various reasons try to ignore what Hamas is and what it's done and what it in, intends to do. And, and unless I'm missing something, Hamas has still not moved from its ideological position. As a matter of fact, they carried out a terrorist attack uh, to bait Israel into a, a, a full-scale war, which shows me both its objective and its callousness. 
And then, of course, is the other side, right? Israel's maybe disproportionate response, the fact that it's not really interested uh, in in, in uh, individual lives in Palestine is using them. as So there's enough blame, obviously, here to go around and around and around. Um, I'm just worried because you asked me this question about why we're afraid to ask certain things, is that many people have conflated the Palestinian cause and the murder of innocents with Hamas as if somehow is therefore legitimate, or that what is, mm. is understandable. That, that to me, is a huge problem. Because I think on the, on the huge list of people that don't care about the Palestinians, and that includes much of the Western world, uh, Hamas ranks at the top. Yeah. And, and that I'm, I don't know why people are saying, if you were really interested in the fate of a particular people, you would do something constructive about it, no matter how difficult or unpleasant that is. But for decades. It's, it's been an agent of foreign governments. It's, it's been a militant organization. It has isolated and brought uh, Gaza, and so has Israel. That's, that's exactly the point. But this notion that Hamas is somehow, you know, we don't have to talk about Hamas, or it's not really about Hamas, I don't, I don't get that at all. This is very much about a terrorist organization. Dr. Arn Kislenko with us, Margaret McMillan, Trinity One International Relations Program, Trinity College, University of Toronto, and Department of History, Toronto Metropolitan University. Always fascinating, Arn. Thanks for the time. Thank Be well. You, you too. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Whatever happened to the rapporteur, Scott? Whatever happened to uh, David Johnston? Do we hear? I've just uh, typed into, I've done a Google search since you started mentioning it, and there is not a single mention of him since he left the rapporteurship. He has just vanished. I am sure. Another career destroyed by uh, a prime minister. I am sure he's in his Laurentian uh, cottage or chalet, the retreat, the one where he used to babysit the Trudeau children and uh, is probably, oh, you know, right. hidden in there. He's, he's just, he's totally, if you ever saw the, the poor man, if you ever saw the, the show prison break, there was a guy who was locked <laughs> in a chalet and wasn't allowed to leave. That's him now. I'm just never, you're never going to see him again. Oh my. All right. So you're talking about the beer store tonight. Well, okay. So here, here's the story is, and people, if they're listening last night and tonight, they're going to think that all I do is drink. It's the opposite of that. But we, uh, somehow I got on to this LCBO. All I do is drink and then finish the sentence, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> so I got onto this LCBO mailing list for vintages, and I don't drink expensive wine. I don't drink expensive booze. I don't drink much at all anyway. But every once in a while, there's a bottle that's really hard to get that looks kind of cool, or someone might like it as a gift. And so I mm-hmm. somehow signed up. And they had this email that came out a couple of weeks ago saying these hard to get bourbons were coming out, not expensive, but just really hard to get. And I thought, oh, I know someone who would like that for a present. And the reason I'm bringing all this up is this, a couple of weeks ago or a week ago, the province announced, or we heard rumors, the province may privatize the beer store or just get rid of it. Well, okay. So they announced that these bottles are going to go on sale at 830 in the morning last week, last Thursday or last Friday or something. So of course I go online and within a minute, the website has crashed within a minute at 8.30 in the morning. So people have got up, they've built their day. They haven't gone into work because they want to be on to get these hard to get, but not expensive bottles. So they say, oh, a couple of days later, they get another note saying, oh, oops, sorry about that whole website thing. We're going to do it again on the 24th, as in today, 8.30 AM, all fixed. All right. Go on this morning, 30 seconds in, website crashes. Nobody can get on again. Oh man. And all I can think is, you know, I know people talk about how, oh, we, you know, we don't want to privatize stuff because what we can't privatize some of the things that we do fast enough 
honestly, yeah. because, no. you know, yes, you, the cost may go up of some things and somebody might make a profit of some things, but at least they might actually work. And there might be people behind them who are motivated to do something that works. It's unbelievable. I couldn't believe it today that Scott, if this was an, if this had been a private enterprise of any business who had their website go the first time yeah. and then make a big announcement that, oh, we're all back. It's all going to be good. If your website went down a second time, that person would not be working at that business by day's end today. It's going to be interesting to see, and, you know, because they're talking about renewing or not renewing the contract for the beer store. But, you know, as others have pointed out, that isn't going to mean the beer store is going to disappear. It just, there may be less of them. It may alter in some ways how it does things. It'll be interesting to see because that is foreign owned by three, which were once Canadian brewers, now international brewers. Uh, obviously, the government of Ontario owns the LCBO. It is the biggest purchase, purchaser, single purchaser of alcohol in the world. So they've got tremendous buying power. However, we don't see that when it comes to the price because it's taxed so much. So it'll be interesting to see if one situation influences the other, because theoretically, uh, they probably got more control over the LCBO than they do the beer store. I just look at this and, and it's, it's, it's one example. And I bring this up, not for any particular reason, except it's another example where I, I believe too often, not always, but too often public sector stuff is unmotivated to necessarily be better. It's often more expensive. It's often slower. It's often more cumbersome. It often has a lot more bureaucracy. Look at our government in every facet, but is it better? Is it better? And I, and I like today was just such an, there's a guy who used to work here at the station uh, that I was texting because I had texted him before when this last thing happened laughing because I saw him sending out a tweet about how annoying this was. And I went back to him today and I said, are you online again? He goes, yes. And you could, it was just, <laughs> it's just how bad can you possibly run a business? And people have no other choice. We are stuck with these businesses that we have to operate through. I just, it's crazy. It's crazy to me. And bigger government's better, as they say. All oh, right, much Scott better. Radley. Much and better. The Scott Radley Show. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great weekend, Scott. Thank you. I bet David Johnson got through. I bet he got some of those bottles. There, maybe you should tap him for them. There you go. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word. This email from Steve Clark on the summit in Newfoundland uh, with the EU. Attendees at the world event at our glorious leader attends and there are not enough corners in the room. Attendees are avoiding a world leader with justified reason. Standing too close to the Canadian leader is bound to penetrate close and give witness to a skunk in the room. As ever, Steve, keep right except to pass. 